I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2017. Enjoy. I'm sure many of you listening are well acquainted with the dramatic court case that played out uh, in the Kenosha Unified School District around the story of Ashton Whitaker. And uh, just a week before Ashton Whitaker graduated from Tremper High School, a federal appeals court uh, said that Ashton, a transgender student identifying as male, should be permitted to use the boys' bathroom at Tremper High School. This was a court battle that had played out over the course of a couple of different years. Ashton began this fight uh, back when he was a sophomore. And uh, it was almost came too late. In a sense, it did come too late. Uh, it came right on the eve of his graduation. But nevertheless, it was uh, an important moment for him and for the school district. And uh, certainly got a lot of people discussing this uh, important and, and sometimes confusing issue. I'm really happy in light of that uh, uh, important story involving Ashton Whitaker and, and other conversations we've had on the morning show to uh, speak for the next few minutes with Heath Fogg Davis, who is responsible for a book called Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? In which he wants to talk about Uh, all of the ways in which we demand to know people's gender on various documents and in in various aspects of of our public life, including the bathrooms we use and the sports teams on which we play and the colleges uh, to which we are admitted and uh, the driver's licenses which we carry around in our, our wallets. What does it mean to mark M for male or F for female or for there to be other options that uh, uh, are not part of that simple binary? And uh, are we asking for people to identify and share with the world uh, their own gender identification uh, for good reason or or for no reason at all? And uh, does some of this actually prompt discrimination? all of these questions and more are, are probed in this very uh, intriguing and thought-provoking book. Heath Fogg Davis is Associate Professor of Political Science at Temple University in Philadelphia and an appointed member of Philadelphia's Mayoral Commission on LGBT Affairs. And uh, Philadelphia has been a very uh, intriguing site of, 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 some, of, of some important decisions that, that have been made and, and choices made uh, around this very issue. He is also the author of The Ethics of Transracial Adoption. Again, this book is called Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? The book is published by New York University Press. Heath Fogg Davis, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much. I'm I'm delighted to be here. I'm really happy that we can have this conversation. Ahead of us probing into uh, the heart and soul of your book, I wonder if you could share with our listeners uh, a bit about your own story. And uh, and maybe uh, I, I will preface that question by mentioning that you say more than once in the book that it's important that we ask in conversations like this who you are rather than mm-hmm. what you are. Um, I, I hope in the course of your answer you will also explain the importance of that distinction. Absolutely. And I like the way that you set that up because... Um, 
the, the main point of the book, as you pointed out earlier, is to ask this question, does gender matter? So it's really a very simple, straightforward question that I think that we need to ask way more often than we do. Uh, too often we, we assume... Hello? That, hello? Yep, I just lost you there for a second. Go ahead. Okay, sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that we make that assumption that it does matter, and in, in many cases it, it doesn't. Hmm. So tell us uh, something about yourself and your own journey. Sure, yeah. And so I, I identify as a transgender person, a trans man. Um, I transitioned a little bit later in life, so at the age of 38, and I'm 46 now. Um, so uh, I have a personal connection to, to the book, and I share a little bit you know, of my own story in, in the book, um, uh, mainly around kind of bringing the human dimension into this topic. Um, I feel like we're at a point in our culture right now where most people know the term and, and they're hearing about cases like the one that you talked about earlier. Um, so they know that this is an issue, um, but they don't always understand the human dimension and the impact of discrimination on people who are not only transgender, but also uh, gender nonconforming. And I try to make that distinction in the book to make the point that when we talk about transgender discrimination, often we have um, a set of stereotypes in our mind and we don't uh, think about the variation within that term. And so, for example, um, I'm a pretty gender conforming, I would say, individual. Uh, so I don't, not perceived uh, in a lot of places as transgender. Um, that's not always true for other people. And so I just make the point that not all trans people experience discrimination on the basis of, of gender identity. And connected to that, there are a lot of people who are not transgender who uh, suffer from gender identity discrimination. So you think about uh, more masculine presenting women and feminine presenting men, for example. Um, and, uh, and I talk a little bit about my own story, um, having been a more masculine presenting um, uh, quote-unquote girl you know, and, and woman at different points in my life. I encountered a lot of, of discrimination in public restrooms and just people saying you're not in the right place and um, that kind of day-to-day harassment is something that, um, that we need to talk about because we could design bathrooms much differently than we do today and, and solve a lot of that, that problem. Right. Uh, I want to ask one other question about your own personal story, if I may, and I, uh, feel free to answer to whatever extent you, you, you feel comfortable. I'm curious to know uh, a, a little more about the fact that you, you ultimately – uh, made your transition, uh, you yourself said, relatively late in life. And uh, I think it would be interesting to know uh, what the various factors were that, that contributed to that, to, uh, to the fact that you, you uh, lived your life for, for such a long time uh, w- one way and then made this mm-hmm. transition. And was it that... Uh, at, did did your own sense of awareness of of who you really were or meant to be did that change, or 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 were you really consciously pulling back from making this transition that would have been more natural for you because of some of these 
outside factors and the potential of discrimination and so on, uh, did those consciously hold you back from ultimately making this transition until you finally felt compelled to do so? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, uh, a lot of things come, come to mind, and, and the dominant one is that, um, you know, growing up, I, I grew up in a, in a farming community in Ontario, Canada, um, came to the United States for college. These, you know, in my experience growing up, that these issues were not discussed, and we didn't even have the terminology um, to talk about this. So, you know, we used to hear the term transsexual, um, transvestite, um, and, and, and connected to that, um, a slew of really bad, uh, terrible representations of what that meant in our TV shows and our, our popular culture movies. You could think of everything from Silence of the Lambs to just innumerable examples. Um, so growing up, being inundated with those, those images, um, the absence of any discussion around gender identity, especially where I grew up, um, it re- really wasn't until the 1990s that transgender activism started to get rolling um, and that the term itself, transgender, came into our public, uh, our, our popular culture. So uh, I would say, you know, just not knowing that it was a possibility. Um, and so things are very, very different right now, and it's always easy to sort of be ahistorical and think, you know, well, these options were, must have always been available, and the truth is that they weren't, you know. Um, uh, and a lot has happened in the last 10 years. Um, but I would say that just the absence of a possibility, when you don't know that it's a possibility, you don't have any other examples of people um, doing this, it, it, it's just not on your radar screen. So I, um, yeah, and, and, and certainly, you know, all of most of our stereotypes about what transgender people look like and who they are are about transgender women. And those have been the really terrible uh, depictions in any kind of law and order <laughs> episode that you see often um, just stereotyped as sex workers and typically, you know, getting brutally beaten or murdered, That's sort of what the representation was. And never, definitely never saw anyone who was a transgender man uh, or transgender boy for that matter. So, um, so again, just not having that um, uh, on, on the radar screen at all. Right. And of course, I think it's important, uh, maybe especially for our younger listeners, to be reminded mm-hmm. that, yeah. that uh, before the mid-1990s, there was essentially nothing called the Internet, uh, at least yeah. that, that, <laughs> that the general public was accessing. And so uh, so many of the kind of communities that are possible now uh, were not possible then. And if someone was growing up in a small town in rural America, rural Canada, wherever, uh, you would have a really terrible sense of isolation that is probably really hard for younger people to even imagine. And even for some of us who are uh, uh, of a certain age that should remember those days, I don't think always do remember those days and remember what it, what it was like to, to, to live in a world where, where you could really feel truly alone with uh, whatever issues were, were uh, a, a challenge to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it makes me think of 
even, you know, sexual orientation. So um, even, you know, as I was growing up and the place that I grew up, um, also very uh, terrible images of what that meant. And that has changed dramatically. You think about the some of the um, television characters that we have now, um, people, you know, uh, celebrities, Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres. And I remember when she came out in the 1990s, mid-1990s, and it was a, you know, it was a huge, um, there was a lot of backlash. And now she's got, you know, an incredibly uh, popular talk show. And so you just look at a, that one person's story like that. Um, I guess for younger people, it could seem like Ellen was always just accepted, but she was really vilified. And a similar thing, I think, has been happening with um, with trans identities. And so we have you know, some people, prominent people coming out as trans and the internet, as you talked about, and um, it's being discussed and, and you can connect with people and not feel isolated. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Heath Fogg Davis, an associate professor of political science at Temple University and the author of a new book called Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Uh, this book essentially is... Uh, an argument that gender categories, particularly as we tend to use them in fairly blunt, sim- simplistic ways, uh, are, are maybe no longer uh, useful or, or, or necessary. And perhaps we should really think seriously as a society about making much less utilization of them and maybe not utilizing them at all. Your book begins with a, a really interesting story Actually, I think from your your the city where you live, Philadelphia, uh, and uh, and it involves the use of something called sex stickers. Explain what this uh, story is about. Sure. So um, in in Philadelphia, we had a very uh, bizarre uh, policy with our public transportation authority. So the, the uh, bus company here is called SEPTA, uh, just an acronym, and um, they had a policy that mandated that if you bought a monthly pass, anybody who purchased a monthly pass had to have a, a sex sticker of male or female on that pass, so an M or an S. Um, and you can even see at this early stage of the story that questioning their relevance. Why was this necessary? Um, a lot of cities had this practice at one point uh, in their history, but they abandoned it. Um, Philly held on to it. I think the Long Island Railroad still um, practices this uh, this policy. In any event, an African-American transgender woman, Charlene Arcilla, who also happened to be an activist around trans rights in, in our city, um, tried to use, she bought an F marked pass for female, tried to use that to board a bus um, and was turned away. The bus driver in a very, you know, loudly said, you're not a, you're not a real woman. So she was denied access to the bus. She couldn't use her pass. She had to pay for her bus ride, get out the $2. She came back with an M marked pass just to see what would happen there. And she was told, you're not, you're not a man. So it put her in this no-win situation. She filed a legal complaint with the city of Philadelphia on the basis of gender identity discrimination. The bus company dragged its heels for a long time. And in 2013, eventually, uh, it it uh, discontinued that practice, but it never admitted that it had committed gender identity discrimination. 
And I use this story because I think it's a very – it vividly shows, uh, you know, the, the irrelevance of gender. There, there's no – and the, the company, its justification was that it was a, a fraud prevention measure based on a very heterosexist uh, assumption that husbands and wives in the same household would pass the, the, the bus pass back and forth and they would share it instead of buying two. Um, so there's not, this is an irrational use of gender in a policy, and if it's irrational and ridiculous here and it caused not just transgender people like Charlene, but also anybody who was gender nonconforming in any kind of way. So even like uh, non-transgender women with a short haircut sometimes, you know, were, were uh, discriminated against. Um, if it's ridiculous in this event, what about the sex markers on our driver's licenses? What about the birth certificate sex markers? And we're seeing, you know, Oregon and D.C. just recently um, offered a third option of X on a driver's license. Um, so they're sort of starting to come around to this this idea. But really asking that question, if it's, if it's, if it's ridiculous in this instance, then what other – why are we doing it in these other places as well? Right. And we'll get to that matter uh, a little later about whether or not uh, – <laughs> This idea of M, F, or X, if 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 that's really a, a worthwhile or e- effective way to, to to deal with this, uh, as this uh, case in Philadelphia uh, neared uh, resolution, uh, the organization uh, that uh, that uh, Charlene was part of uh, ended up penning a Writer's Bill of Rights, and you quote uh, one line from it that I think is quite intriguing that uh, says this, we have the right not to be forced into the categories of male or female. In in many respects, that's what this, this whole thing is about, isn't it? The fact that uh, when forms are created and those are the choices put there, uh, a blithe assumption is being made by the person putting that form together that anybody should be able to clearly and cleanly uh, make one of those two choices. And uh, your, your experience and the experience of many others tells us that that's simply not possible in every case. Yeah, and it's, it, it's something, uh, and this gets into the definition of transgender discrimination, and uh, which is a bit of a misnomer because as I said before, it's not all transgender people who get caught up in transgender discrimination. And a lot of other people who are not transgender actually experience this kind of discrimination. If you think about um, the M and F boxes on an intake form, you know, a medical intake form, for example, what's the point there? Well, they're using M and F as proxies for all sorts of things, uh, assumptions about what, what our bodies look like, um, so physiological features, um, uh, hormone levels, experience in the world. And my argument is that in those scenarios, especially in a medical setting, if you want to know um, whether somebody has a prostate gland, for example, then you have to ask that question and not use um, M as a proxy for that. Um, because the goal there is to give the very best medical uh care to that individual and to communicate effectively. Um, and that's it's going to be true that most people that check the M box are going to have uh, physiological characteristics like a, a prostate gland, but it's not true in everybody's case. 
And in a medical setting, it's not good enough just that most people have this. You want to make sure that that individual that you're communicating effectively. So, um, so that's yeah, that's really what I'm arguing in the book that even when we we think that sex-related characteristics are important in this venue, to really be specific. Mm. Um, and that's going to make us a little uncomfortable because as a society, we're not all that comfortable talking about um, genitals and, uh, and different and bodies in general. Right. Um, in, in one portion of the, the book's introduction, there's the heading, Naming the Problem. And uh, this is something that is obviously obviously of, of, of great concern to you because you spend a fair amount of the book uh, either spelling this out or spelling it out again and again. And I'm glad you do because I think it really is important and it lends some clarity to uh, this conversation about something that is uh, pretty complicated. And in many respects, people are thinking about questions that they have never in their whole lives thought about before. One of the distinctions that is most important to you, and you want it to be important to us as well, is uh, the distinction between sex identity and gender identity. Uh, I think we've grazed this, but we haven't really explored uh, the, the essence of the difference and why that difference matters so much. Explain the difference between sex identity and gender identity. Sure. So um, in the public discourse around transgender civil rights right now, the term gender identity is being used. And um, I think we would be better off using the term sex identity. um, And for this reason, I think that when we're talking about uh, transgender discrimination, we're talking about discrimination, um, the basis of whether you belong to the category male or female, or maybe neither or uh, both. So, um, so it's it's a discrimination based on belonging. We th- think about traditional forms of sex discrimination and gender discrimination. Um, gender is a term that we typically use these days to talk about masculinity and femininity, and those stereo the stereotypes around masculinity and femininity really go to our traditional understanding of, of sexism. That, that, you know, um, that women can't be firefighters uh, because they, they're uh, stereotypically, they, they're not up to it physically. Um, so, uh, and men so shouldn't think, be nannies. Exactly, mm-hmm. right. So, so sex, uh, sex stereotypes about the kind of jobs that we should do, um, what we should wear, how, how we should act, all of those things. That's really what, you know, uh, like, the women's movement has been all about and uh, gender equity to get parity between um, men and women in these various settings. Sex identity discrimination involves all of that, but it also goes a step further um, where people are not believed or they, they don't get to determine and say who they are in relationship to the categories of female and male. Um, people thwart their, their efforts in that regard. And going back to the, the, um, high school students' case, Ashton's case, um, saying, you know, the, the, the opposition there was, you don't belong in the boys' bathroom because, you know, we're going to deny you that sense of belonging, even though it was clear from his perspective that that's where he belonged. Right. Also in this portion of the book, uh, you, you make mention of a term that I had never uh, 
come across myself before, and I've, I've read a fair amount about this, and I'm sure I've seen this term, but it just flew past me. And I, I want to understand once and for all exactly what is meant by the term of cisgender. I want to spend, spell it for our listeners, C-I-S-G-E-N-D-R. So you make reference to people who are cisgender. Uh, what does that term exactly uh, represent? Yeah, um, so that's a term that has sort of entered into, you know, um, you think about dictionaries, you know, like new terms are always coming up and being redefined. Um, so I would say that this is a term that uh, came about maybe in the last decade, um, and it just refers to somebody who is not transgender, somebody who doesn't identify as transgender. And somebody explained to me once that they're derivation of the term itself it has something to do with with science and cells i believe but i can't i can't get any more specific than that so i'm not sure about the etymology of the term mm. itself but the way that it's used um is to to, to uh, identify people who don't are, are not transgender um and i think i kind of go back and forth in the book a little bit because you know sometimes use the term just non-transgender um uh to refer to people who, who aren't transgender um but that cisgender is a is a term that is uh, being used more more frequently now. So so in other words, <laughs> maybe to be frank or blunt about it, uh, yeah. maybe I'm incorrect. But is cisgender another way to say that someone is normal? I mean, the way we would once upon a time maybe use that term, or the way the way a lot of people would use that that term. And I realize. That splits the world into normal and abnormal, which, of course, is very offensive to anyone who is looked upon or called abnormal. But in a sense, then, you're talking about cisgender being someone for whom the matter of 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 their sexual identity, uh, there is, in a sense, no issue. They they feel that their, their, their sense of who they are aligns with who they are uh, in terms of their anatomy, is that what it means? Um, I, 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 yeah, and I hear what you're saying about normal versus abnormal, and the stigma that comes with that. I, I, the the way I like to talk about that that distinction is to talk about the majority experience and people mm. who are in the minority. And here we're talking about uh, a literal, like, numerically in the minority. So. Most people, the majority of people, at least at this point right now, as far as we know, um, are, are, are assigned one sex at birth, male or female, and go on to live their lives um, not questioning that designation. It, it, it fits them more or less. You know, um, It's not something that brings about any stress or um, they're not motivated to transition to uh, the other gender. Um, so, but um, that's not true for the... For everybody, so some people like me um, are not don't go on to to live their lives identifying with the sex that they were assigned to at birth. And then the question for us as a society, you know, for the majority, let's say, how how important is it for the majority to understand everything about what the minority is going through? Because they think that there's a limit. There's a human connection there, but there's a limit. So then the next question is, do you want to make public policy for the majority without any regard for the minority, or do you want to look at the minority experience and the most vulnerable people 
um, and, and think about making things better from their perspective and also in doing that, how can we make these things better for everybody? So I'm very, you know, hopeful and optimistic in the book. And I, I think that it, there's a lot of win-win scenarios where we can design bathrooms that are, are better for everybody, you know, not just transgender people. We can make forms, application forms that are better for everybody, or at least the majority is not harmed um, in these cases. So uh, rather than thinking about it as, you know, oh, uh, like a zero-sum game, like you give some rights to trans people and that takes away from uh, from cisgender people, I don't think that that needs to be the case. Do you have time for a couple more questions or do we need to finish up? Oh, no, I'd be delighted. Yeah, I'm enjoying our conversation. Very good. Let me reintroduce you. I'm speaking with Heath Fogg Davis, uh, the author of the book Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Uh, in in terms of terminology, you, you point out also that <laughs> not only is there, I think, very obviously an issue with talking about people who are normal and people who are abnormal, and, of course, the differences we were talking about between uh, uh, gender discrimination and sex uh, 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 discrimination, sex identity discrimination. But you also caution us that we have to be really careful about using language like correction, uh, that, that, that we can stray over a line that we might not mean to as, as, as well. Uh, and and uh, could you just say a word about uh, the, the, the caution you want us to uh, observe here? Sure. And this goes to a main point in the book. So um, the, 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 the model that's being used by mainstream transgender advocacy, um, and it's all well-intentioned, but it's all about assimilation. So it goes back to um, Ashton's uh, situation at, at the high school, assimilating him into the boys' bathroom. So not challenging the binary system itself or the way that those bathrooms are built. Um, and that, I think, is a limited kind of strategy for a couple of reasons. It's about correction. So he was you know, using the girls' bathroom was the wrong thing. It had to be corrected, and the correction entailed using the boys' bathroom. That works for some people, you know, and and, and, and it sounds like in, in his case it did, and for many people it will. But that's not going to work for everybody. So not everybody can or wants to assimilate into one of those bathrooms, for example. You know, some people uh, are identify as non-binary. We haven't talked about that yet, but there are people, which basically means um, they don't want, goes back not wanting to be forced into either male or female category. So they might, uh, you know... Um, dress in a way or comport themselves in a way that's a combination of masculine and feminine traits and they, they don't they're not perceived by other people as as fitting into one category or, or the other in other and words it's in other words it's a matter of a spectrum it, it's a yeah. spectrum upon which people can fall and a spectrum upon which people can travel absolutely absolutely so thinking about things on a, on a continuum or a spectrum I think um, is is a much better way of making sure that we don't just create another sort of stereotype about what transgender looks like, and, and, and then we've solved that question, and then you're going to have people who fall outside of that definition. And, um, and really, the example of Charlene Arcilla with the bus pass is an example of somebody who wasn't believed in either case, so wasn't able to assimilate, wasn't able to use either 
uh, an S or an M bus pass. And that's a perfect example of why, in that case, it's better to get rid of the, the policy of sex marking altogether. Hmm. Your 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 first chapter explores this in a uh, it's it's titled the the sex markers we carry, and it talks about uh, documents like birth certificates and driver's licenses and 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 so on, and uh, there are a couple of things uh, there to, to 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 talk about. One thing uh, is that I I've heard some people make a distinction between, for instance, uh, uh, the way in which we think about the assignment of, of gender on a, on a driver's license versus altering one's birth certificate. And, uh, and I think that there are, are a few people who don't have much problem, maybe no problem at all with the, the driver's license. But when it comes to altering the birth certificate, uh, that, that's a line that some people are, are, are much more reluctant to cross because in a sense, uh, they, they have a different feeling about what a birth certificate is and the kind of information which it conveys, and that it should represent, in a sense, who you were as you came out of the womb. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that distinction? Yeah, great question. Um, so it's it, it, uh, worth saying that every state except for uh, Tennessee uh, has allows uh, trans people to alter their birth certificate sex markers. So that's just as a sort of a thing, and that's uh, an important piece of the puzzle. Um, you think about the legislation in North Carolina. So North Carolina uh, passed a bathroom bill, was the only state to have passed it. It's since been repealed. A number of other states now have similar legislation um, proposed. But the gist of the bathroom bill in North Carolina was that it referred to birth certificates in particular. It said that your legal or biological sex is what's listed on your birth certificate, and you have to that has to match up with the bathroom that you use. So interesting two things about that. One is that they're just as you said, going to the birth certificate as if it's the sort of the the objective fact of, of who you really are, quote unquote, uh, in regard to sex identity. However, if that can change, and it can, even in North Carolina, then that kind of blows up that, that argument. Um, and then the second thing about that is that we don't generally carry our birth certificates around on us. And so that form of legislation would have required us to do that. And also for there to be kind of like a bathroom bouncer outside every public uh, <laughs> restroom in North Carolina. And I, that's the title of one of my chapters. And you can see how ridiculous that is. So, you know, the, the, the policy and some of these laws that get proposed um, have a lot more to do, in my opinion, with, with uh, symbolism, that it's about um, perpetuating this kind of myth that we can pin down everybody's sex identity. And it goes back to even people who are born intersex. How do they, you know, what should their birth certificates say? Um, uh, and then what, how do we use birth certificates? I think that we, the states have... Um, a legitimate interest in, in collecting aggregate data about live birth and sex identity, but that um, when it comes to personal identity documents like a birth certificate, I don't think that, that we should have sex markers on them at all. Right. And later in this chapter, you go into some of the uh, alternate uh, possibilities that have emerged, including one you've already 
uh, mentioned that I think uh, I think you say uh, first emerged in Australia, where uh, I don't remember if it's on passports or birth certificate uh, passports. I think where you had three choices: M, F, or X. And that's uh, something that's uh, come up in their other versions of it, of <laughs> MF and other, or uh, d- different, uh, different uh, options and possibilities. And, of course, one could imagine a scenario in which there might be an array of different possibilities of options that one could, could check off, aside from the uh, simple binary of M or F. You actually do not want us going down this road. Uh, what is the problem with with that, with offering a plethora of choices on such documents? Yeah, um, whenever you add an, a, a category, then you have to like, you have to define that category, and any category is going to have people who get excluded from it because you have to draw the line somewhere. Um, that's one reason, and another reason is that um, it, it can stigmatize people. Uh, so there's the X. Uh, box. Uh, it's interesting, as I mentioned before, D.C. and Oregon, now you can get a driver's license with an X on it. But it remains to be seen whether, you know, how many people are going to choose that option and then how it's going to, how that's going to be perceived and processed, you know, like uh, by the people who check our driver's licenses. Um, I, I think there's, there will be some people who want to do that uh, and some people who don't. Uh, and it doesn't do away with this uh, fundamental problem of the sex binary just being invoked without us asking about the relevance. So with driver's licenses and other forms of ID, I think that what we're going to see in the years to come pretty soon is more uh, biometric forms of identification, so digital IDs that don't, you know, won't, won't even require um, a lot of the information that's on a card, um, which will, which raises a whole set of another another bevy of questions about um, using our fingerprints as as IDs and using our irises and hand hand palms and stuff like that. Um, that uh, that'll be interesting as well. But um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't think that the goal should be to add additional categories because then where do you stop? Um, uh, but rather to challenge asking in the first place. So right. It kind of, yeah. It, it comes down as much as anything to whether this is relevant or irrelevant. And and I think what you are suggesting is your book is that far more often than most of us have really stopped to think about it, uh, this, this kind of matter, this classification is entirely irrelevant. It just does not belong there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the places, times when it does belong, I think things like uh, sex-based affirmative action policies that aim to remedy this disadvantage on the basis of sex or gender are worth considering. I think that there are certain social alliances, like if you want to have a, a sports league uh, for men or for women, I actually think that that, you know, if it's a social thing, then you just have to be very clear about your, uh, your definition of, of who's a woman and who's a man. So if you're a women's softball league are you going to or soccer league are you going to make it clear that transgender women can participate as well um and the same thing goes for men's activities so it kind of comes right back to the original thing that we started talking about the book is saying we need to question the policies that invoke gender i think that when it comes to personal identities and social identities 
um, that gender is really important. And it's so important that we shouldn't give, you know, bus drivers and restaurant managers the authority to, to say that we are in the wrong place. Right. Exactly. That puts way too much power in the hands of people who are not in a position to properly exercise it. And it's and it and, and frankly, it puts them in a position that I would say that the, the typical bus driver emphatically does not want to be in. I mean, it's absolutely it, um, let's get to the matter of bathrooms. And, and of course, there's no not sufficient time for us to uh, explore this to the detail that we perhaps should, because this is really a significant question and issue that you spend a lot of time on uh, uh, in, in the book. Uh, and, and I should say it, it, it's probably not the easiest thing to write about uh, in you know, some of these matters we, we scarcely ever even mention, uh, but it's important uh, to, to really talk about this frankly. And, and one of the points you make is that when we are talking about bodily functions like urination and and defecation we we are talking about something that is essential to our health essential to our well-being and that we have to be so careful about making capricious uh decisions or choices that make it very very difficult for people to uh uh engage in these in these functions that simply have to happen and we need to make sure that we are aware of the way in which people's lives are drastically altered and uh, where they can go and what they can do and we probably don't talk about that enough absolutely uh, and I, I love the way that you put that I mean in order to be in public at all you have to have not just access to a public restroom but consistent access to a public restroom and anybody, you know, who's listening can, can think of their own lives. You, you either have to, you know, use a bathroom at your workplace if you're out doing shopping or whatever. A lot of people, a lot of us just go to Starbucks who <laughs> feel like that's a, 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 a you know, it's not, a, it's not there for uh, people who aren't customers, but we kind of sneak in. Um, so denying somebody access to a public bathroom has profound consequences for whether they can participate at all in, you know, education, work, you know, all the things in the public sphere. Um, and I talk a little bit in the book about our history also. Um, so it used to be that there weren't very many um, women's restrooms in the public sphere when women weren't in- included or welcome in a lot of work industries and a lot of education. Um, and we think about this in connection with race, and we can see that clearly, that that was a central target, seeming, seemingly trivial, but incredibly profound, a very effective way of saying, we don't want you in our public institutions, is to say there's no place for you to take care of your essential bodily functions. You, in exploring this issue, uh, make a point that may catch a couple people by surprise, but... Uh... But uh, you believe it. You write, as a practical matter, sex-segregated restrooms are an expensive and inefficient use of space. So what is your proposal? What would you have public places do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I And we're starting to see this with some innovative architect firms are starting to propose uh, these sorts of solutions. So in, in Philadelphia, for example, we have some examples in our um, in some restaurants where you just have a series of individual private bathroom stalls, and then um, so floor to ceiling partitions, so people have their privacy 
and then uh, if they're gender neutral, anybody can use them. And then in the middle, you have uh, sinks and mirrors uh, where people, you know, there's no need to sex segregate there. Um, you sort of, I, it's a controversial thing to say, but I think we should get rid of the urinal <laughs> in, in public places. There's enormous disparity between men and women right now and the, and the time that they have to wait to access a public bathroom. And that has everything to do with urinals versus toilet stalls and how men and women use uh, public bathrooms. Um, so I think that we can make them, we can establish privacy. We can also make them safer places. This is an argument that a lot of people make uh, against sort of the, or in favor of these bathroom bills it's to say that you know transgender women are men who are going to dress up as women and go into women's bathrooms and assault girls and women we've never had any case like that so it's a complete you know it's a made-up thing it's a misconception of what transgender female identity is about and um i think if we build bathrooms in a different way um it could actually make them safer because they would be spaces where Predators did not think that just women and uh, girls are going to be there, and that's part of the problem right now. Uh, this this does happen. Mm. So, in a sense, uh, this possibility would make everybody safer in bathrooms uh, because there wouldn't be a women's bathroom where women are presumed to go, and where uh, a predatory male, for instance, might might have reason to step in and 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 look for a victim. In a sense, in a world where there was not, uh, where there were no sex-segregated restrooms, uh, it would ultimately be a safer scenario, even if at a glance it might not feel that way. Yeah, and and you know, and I wrote an, uh, an op-ed piece for CNN back in February about this with with Title IX, which deals with with schools. Um, so it's controversial to put it out there, but I think we should do a similar thing even in, in our schools. Uh, we should probably do it, roll it out first with, with adults in different settings. But ultimately, you think about uh, sex-segregated bathrooms in schools. They're places where a lot of bullying uh, takes place uh, for both boys and girls. Um, and part of that is that the, the, you know, this, they're not being surveilled by teachers. They're not possible in that regard. What if we had architects really imagine you know, a safer, more cost-effective in terms of the use of space and all that, but a safer uh, environment for, for kids where that, I think mo- a lot of sex-segregated spaces, not, not a lot of good comes from them um, in, a, in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. Your book goes on to uh, explore how this issue plays out in the matter of sports and whether or not we should be segregating uh, most sports uh down the line of of female and male uh, competitors, and also explore some intriguing uh, uh, issues involved in in uh, higher education, and and not just higher education for that matter, but when we're talking about uh, institutions of learning uh, that might be for for uh, for uh, just uh, women or just men, and. Uh, if we need to rethink some of those uh, boundaries and and distinctions. Uh, In the minute or so that remains, as you began writing this book, uh, did you realize how complicated some of these questions, in fact, uh, can sort of be, or how many other questions tend to get raised along the way? 
Yeah, you know, and I also I, I do some consulting with organizations and businesses. So the more that I'm out there in the quote unquote real world and talking to people about how to there, you know, how to bring about some of these changes, there are a lot of moving parts and there's a lot going on, which is why I think it's so important and helpful to bring us back to that central question, which is in the title of the book, Does Gender Matter Here? In a lot of those cases, um, you, you can get rid of gender altogether. And then in places where we do think that it matters, um, then to just to be very conscientious about how we define the terms and to not assume that we all understand what we mean by, you know, when we say women or men, mm. boys and girls. Um, so is it relevant? Uh, uh, is the policy harmful? Can we can we get rid of it and do things better, not just for trans people, but also for for everybody? Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities to do that. The book is Beyond Trans: Does Gender Matter? Published by New York University Press. The author Heath Fogg Davis. Professor Davis, thank you so much for this book and for this conversation. Thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure. Thanks.